Amen. Thank you, Tony. They are going to be shocked when they come back and Jonathan's not still up here praying. So um, thanks for doing that for us this morning. Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer, and uh, it's, it's a lot of fun to be uh, around here uh, this morning. So uh, thank you for being here. Uh, this fall, we are in the middle of a series uh, looking at the life of David from the books of First and Second Samuel. And so uh, I would ask that you kind of make your way there if you have a Bible and you want to follow along. If you don't, don't worry. The scripture passage will be printed for you. Uh, it is printed for you in the worship folder. It will also be on the screen behind me. And you can read along together. We're going to read First uh, Samuel verse eight, uh, chapter 18, uh, the first 16 verses of that chapter this morning. So let's do that uh, together to give those who are over there getting the kids settled a little more time to get back. So let's read together, beginning in verse 1. As soon as they had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul sent him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all of the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women saying to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Get this. The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul. And he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had a spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David, because the Lord was with him, but it departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David. For he went out and came in before them. This is God's word. As I said this fall, we're going to be looking at the life of David in First and Second Samuel. Most commentators and theologians believe that these stories were written to the Jews who had returned to the land of Israel after their exile in Babylon, if you know the story in the Bible. Okay? If you've read kind of the narrative of the Old Testament scripture, you know that once God brings his people out of Egypt and into the land that he had promised Abraham... Uh, Things go well for them there for a few hundred years, but eventually their kings become corrupt, and so to punish them, God brings in first the Assyrians and then the Babylonians to carry them off into exile as a way of punishing them and kicking them out of the land that he had given to them. However, he does not leave them there, but all the prophets begin to talk about the day when he's going to go and get them and bring them back. And we believe that these stories, at least in the version that they come down to us in the Old Testament, were probably written to those exiles who had returned to the land of Israel after their exile to show them that they needed a king like David, that they needed leaders that were like David, men after God's own heart. So the stories are there to show them what kingly character looks like so that they could look for the right people to be their leaders and so they could develop kingly character in themselves. And so the author of 1 and 2 Samuel accomplishes this by doing this. He contrasts constantly in these first few chapters here, David with Saul. There's this contrast of David and Saul. It's the overriding feature of this portion of the narrative, okay? So, for example, in chapter 15, you have Saul, we looked at this a few weeks ago, disobeying the Lord, not performing the commands of God. And then in chapter 16, God says, I'm done with him. I'm going to go find a man after my own heart. And you're introduced to this young shepherd boy named David, who is a man who is after God's heart. In chapter 17, as Goliath comes out to taunt the Israelites, you have Saul cowering, you know, cowering in the camp, refusing to go out and to stand before the Philistine. And then there's this young man, David. Saul, you know, paralyzed by a Goliath-dominated imagination. And then there's David, who's bold and courageous and, and full of faith and strong, and he goes out to defeat 
the enemy. And so what's happening is, is in David, we're being shown what kingly character looks like. He's the hero. He's the champion. He's the one who goes out to fight on behalf of his people. And in him, ultimately what we've said is we are to see the true hero, the true champion. Jesus Christ, who, like David, goes out against sin and death and hell on our behalf and is victorious. But in Saul, see, in Saul, you see the antithesis. You see the opposite of kingly character. The kind of, you know, self-centeredness and egotism and self-absorption and neurotic, you know, thinking that just begins to destroy a life. Saul uses people. He's self-deceived. He's, you know, he's egomaniacal. And his life just falls apart. And so this morning... We're going to continue this as we look at this passage of Saul and David. And as we're looking at what real kingly character looks like and then the kinds of things that can just destroy your life, in particular this morning, we're going to look at one aspect of Saul's life and his relationship to David that can just absolutely destroy your relationships, destroy your life uh, in so many ways. And it's just this, it's envy. Jealousy. I mean, what ultimately fuels Saul's downward spiral is his jealousy of David. And that's what we're um, kind of giving an, giving an insight into here in these verses. So three things from this passage about envy this morning that I want you to see. I want you to see what it is. I want you to see how it works. And then hopefully I can get us to the point where we can see how we can be healed of it. And so I want to identify envy. I want to show you the dynamics of envy. And then I want to help you see the gospel solution to envy. Those are my three points. You'll see those as the three outlines uh, on the back page from your sermon passage there. We're going to walk through them together. Okay, first. First, the passage really helps us uh, beginning uh, by helping us understand what envy is or how we can identify it. It's right here. Look at verses 6 through 8. We're told the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing, and here was their song. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul, we're told, is very angry, and this saying displeased him, and he said... They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And then this verse, and Saul eyed David from that day on. Now, what is all that? Okay, look at the song there with me for just a minute. Verse 7, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. This is a classic illustration of Hebrew poetic parallelism. It is a literary device used in in all of the, the ancient, you know, Hebrew poetry to compare two things. So you read this in the Psalms and in the Proverbs and some other places where the the author's trying to compare two things and he'll put those two things in two different lines of a poem. And in this case, uh, it's meant to compare Saul and David. The women are complimenting David. They're not necessarily being derogatory towards Saul, but nevertheless, their compliment of David feels like a rejection to Saul. He, he says, he's, he's angry, he's displeased, you see, and we're told he eyed David from that day forward. He was jealous. He, he looked upon him suspiciously. He envied him uh, from that day on. Because, you see, he wanted the people to sing his praises, not David's. I mean, he wanted them to compliment him, and he was so enraged by the fact that David was was getting the compliments that he felt like he deserved and that he wanted from the people, uh, we're told in this chapter, and eventually in chapters 18, 19, and 20, Saul attempts to kill David six times. He's just so enraged. He's so angry. I mean, this is a picture of envy. And if you know the old lists of sins, envy is one of the seven deadly sins. Uh, You can make a case it's one of the, the ten, the big ten that God gave us in the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy 5, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire. I like, I like that the, the ESV uses the word desire. Don't desire your neighbor's house, your neighbor's field, your neighbor's possession. In other words, you know, that, that envy makes the list of the seven deadliest sins and the Ten Commandments means that there's something in envy that is the root of a whole bunch of other sins. There's something really, uh, really, really bad, really, really kind of, un, you know, at the, at the root level of our hearts, that kind of gets expressed in envy that, that is really kind of the root of a lot of other evil and a lot of other sins. Jonathan Edwards, who was a Puritan pastor and theologian, wrote a sermon. And listen to the title. Think about this, the title. I gave you a title of one of his sermons a few weeks ago. But think about the title of this sermon. Love 
inconsistent with the spirit of envy. In other words, he says, love and envy, you can't have both those things. They're completely opposite from one another. So love, inconsistent with the spirit of envy. And in that sermon, he makes a point that, is, that says this. He says that it is the natural disposition of every single one of us in this room and every person who's ever been born to desire to be uppermost and to distinguish ourselves as being superior to others. Right? Pride. Just the human heart, of des- the heart wanting to be elevated above other people. But he says, it is this disposition that is crossed when someone else gets ahead. When somebody else gets a compliment that I feel I deserve. When, when something happens where somebody is seen as being a little better or a little farther along or a little higher up on the ladder than I am, that this, this, this um, disposition of wanting to distinguish myself gets crossed. And so he goes on to say, he says, men cannot bear a rival much, if any, better than a superior. He says, we don't like rivals, but worse than that, we hate people who are seen as being superior to us for we love to be singular and alone in our eminence and advancement. <laughs> That's really nice language. That we don't, we don't talk like that. That was 300 years ago. But what, what's he saying? He's saying, look at Saul. You know, like Saul, when we perceive somebody to be a rival, or worse, when, when, it's, you know, when it's pretty clear that somebody is a superior, and here's the thing I want you to see. Your heart and my heart, we can make even our best friends and people who love us. David, David loved Saul. We can take people who love us, people that we're closely connected to, maybe even sometimes our best friends in our lives, and we can turn them in, our hearts will turn them into rivals because we so desire to be first. We, I mean, it can cause us to hate those people that are rivals, worse, that are, you know, superiors. Hate them and hate their success. Aristotle's definition of envy is just this. Pain caused by the good fortune of others. Oh, isn't that just... Oh, that just makes me feel dirty. To even, In other words, some, something good happens to someone else, and I just, I hate it. It just eats me on the inside. It's painful to me. So instead of rejoicing at the success of a friend, it, it, it hurts. It's painful. I mean, it, that's envy. So how do you know then if your heart's full of envy? I need to give you some, I need to help us to identify this in your own heart. And I've, I thought about how to do this. I think this is the best way. I got three diagnostic questions that I just want you to ask as you think about these things. Okay, three questions that we can ask of ourselves to kind of diagnose where our hearts might be and whether we've really kind of given in to this, to this envy, this spirit of envy. First question. Question number one, are you constantly comparing yourself to other people? In other words, do you, are you constantly evaluating yourself on the basis of others? Do the strengths of others make you feel bad about yourself? Do the weaknesses of others or the sins of others or the juicy tidbits of gossip that you get uh, about others, do those things kind of give you an adrenaline rush and make you feel good about yourself? See, this is what this is where this this is the root of this. It's pride, a desire to be alone, to be singular, and alone in our eminence and advancement. And so, one of the you know we're just constantly kind of comparing. We're feeling one another. We're you know we're constantly comparing. Number two, question number two. As you think about diagnosing envy in your own life, are you constantly comparing yourself to others? Number two, are you able? This just gets oh, this just gets. Are you able to enjoy what somebody else has without making it about you? Let me, let me help you understand what I mean. See, envy, what envy does is envy makes everything about you. It just takes, it makes it about you. And so the way you know you're, you're struggling with envy is you can't appreciate what somebody else has without immediately connecting it to you. Right? You can't su- enjoy the success of others or the beauty in others without comparing yourself to them and then either, you know, hating yourself or hating them or however that dynamic works. So if, if you're a mom, okay, and if, if you're a mom and you go over to a friend's house and her kids, they just behave like perfect angels, right? See, if you're a good friend to that person, then you can rejoice in, their, in, in the, the, the obedience of those children for her sake. But if your heart's full of envy, then what you'll do is you'll immediately connect her success in her parenting of her children to you. You'll just make it about you. And so you'll, 
breakdown in the car on the way home from her house because her success feels like an indictment. She succeeded. I failed. I, I failed. I mean, that, that, see, that's, that's the spirit of envy. See, that's, that's what Saul heard. That's what Saul heard in the song that these women sung. You failed. And they didn't say that. They just said David's slain 10,000. Saul heard, I, I, I'm a failure. See, you may have heard this verse before. Romans 13, 15 is just, distro- I mean, it just blows my, my life to shreds. Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And you see, a good friend, a person who really is loving towards other people, rejoices when their friends are rejoices, rejoicing and weeps when their friends are weeping. But envy will turn you into a person, and this is just absolutely horrifying and ugly, but envy will turn you into a person who, in the deep bottoms of your heart, rejoices when others weep. And who weep when others rejoice. In other words, you'll rejoice in the failures and losses of others. You'll, you'll love to hear juicy tidbits about their sins and struggles. I mean, you'll, you'll come to, to really love and, and want to know and be hungry to, to hear the bad news that comes out of other people's lives because it will feel in your heart like good news to you. Isn't that just gross? It's gross. And so, are you able to rejoice with those who are rejoicing? See, that's the sign of a gospel, a grace-changed heart. Are you able to enjoy what somebody else has without making it about you? Thirdly, third, third diagnostic. Uh, So, do you constantly compare yourself to others? Are you able to enjoy what somebody else has without making it about you? Thirdly, are you able to enjoy what you have instead of longing for something else or something more? You see, what envy does is envy destroys your ability to enjoy what you have. It destroys your ability to sit down and to enjoy the moment and to enjoy what you have because you're constantly comparing yourself with others and you're coming up shorter. There's constantly something else that needs to be done or there's some you know, other thing that needs to be finished. So, so whatever you have, it's not enough. So as long as there's somebody who has more than you do or somebody who has been more successful than you have, whatever you have is never enough. Now think about this. Just think biblically with me for just a minute. Think about Lucifer, the archangel in heaven, Satan, the devil. He was in heaven, and then he had a thought. And what was his thought? I'm number two. And envy made it possible. Think about this. Envy made it possible. Envy made it impossible for Satan to enjoy heaven. And if envy can suck the joy out of heaven, then what do you think it's going to do to you <laughs> and me? Think about the, par- the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve in, in paradise, in Eden. Everything you could possibly want or need, and then Adam and Eve have a thought. I, you know, I bet the tree he told us not to eat is the best tree. And envy made the Garden of Eden not enough. I mean, envy is what ruined the universe. Envy is, what, is what's wrong with the world. It's this undercurrent of envy that just destroys relationships and families and, 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 and human communities. So don't underestimate it. Don't fail to deal with it and root it out of your heart. And so that's how you can identify it. But secondly, I want you to see, coming along with me to the second point, I want not only to show you how to identify it, I want to show you also the, the mechanics of it, how it works, what it does, how it, how it kind of comes in, you know, how it works in your heart and in your life. And there are three things just really quickly, that I want you to see here uh, under this point. And that is that we, we learn a whole bunch of how, about how envy works in the heart. Uh, we see the emotional root of it. If you look there in verse 12, twice we're told and given insight into Saul's emotional reality. Saul was, af- Saul was afraid of David, we're told. And then again in verse 15, it's highlighted even more. He says, the, the, the narrator says, When Saul saw that David had great success, he stood in fearful all of him. So Saul was afraid. I mean, David's success made him feel vulnerable. When David went out to battle, you know, Saul saw that the Lord was with him. Uh, But what he heard in his heart when David would come back in and the crowds would cheer him for the successes that he had experienced on the battlefield, what Saul heard in his heart is, God, you know, God is for him. God is for him. God is for him. And what Saul heard was, the Lord's against me. He's against me. I mean, remember 1 Samuel 15 
Samuel said, the Lord has taken the kingdom away from you. And so Saul has this immediate knowledge that God is working against me. God is out to get me. God is going to take this thing that I love so dearly away from me. And it's that, it's that fear, it's that insecurity, that sense of vulnerability that is the birthplace of envy. Saul doesn't know God's for him. He knows God's for David. And so we see the emotional root there in, in Saul's fear. We secondly see what, what we do with people we envy. So what, is, so what does Saul do with David? Look at verse 13. So Saul removed him from his presence. It was just, I mean, envy is pain at the successes of others. Sometimes, and this happens, I, I see it happen among some of you. In your relationships with one another, there, there's envy. And so it's just painful to watch somebody be so successful at the things you desire to be successful at but can't seem to figure it out. And so the easiest thing to do is just kind of turn your face and walk away from the relationship. I mean, envy creates distance. It takes good friends and makes them rivals. But then what I really want to kind of land on here for just a minute is I want you to see how this passage also teaches us how envy changes us. And this is probably the strangest part of the text. If you look at verses 9 and 10 carefully with me for just a minute, we're told there that Saul hears the song of the women and is enraged by it. And from that day forward, he eyes David with suspicion. And then, and then we're told, look at this verse 10, and the next day a harmful spirit from God rushed on Saul and he raved within his house. What's that? Right? I mean, we are at a distinct disadvantage in being a Presbyterian church here. Okay? So we've got to work hard to really, to really allow that scripture to bear the weight that it bears. I mean, what is that? I mean, a, a harmful spirit from the Lord. I mean, this is... So there's an interesting parallel in this whole story of Saul and David in, um, in another... Well, well, in other places in this narrative, there are parallels that kind of get worked out. And if you remember, in 1 Samuel 10, Saul is anointed king. And as he's going home after being anointed, the text says that the Spirit of God rushed on him and he prophesied. Then in 1 Samuel 16, David is anointed. We saw this a couple of weeks ago. And as he's anointed, the Spirit of God comes down and rushes upon him uh, and, and, and outfits him for the ministry and the, the work that God has given to him. So... You see this spirit coming down and rushing upon people all throughout this passage. But here it is an evil spirit of the Lord that rushes upon Saul. And we're told he begins to rave. Which is the same word translated in other places prophesied in 1010. Uh, And the reason for the parallel statements is the author's trying to do something very important. He's trying to, to set up a contrast. That when the spirit came rushing upon Saul. And when it came rushing upon David it was a sign of divine empowerment for the office to which those men were being called by God. In other words, God was making them king, and then he was sending his spirit to outfit them for the work that they needed to accomplish as king. But here, okay, here in these verses, when this evil spirit comes rushing upon Saul, it's a sign that God's removing his presence, that God's backing away from him, that God is giving Saul over to the evil desires of his heart. And something similar happens in Judges chapter 9, where we're told that Abimelech one of the judges there, and uh, the men of Shechem, which is a city, are at odds with one another, and they hated one another. And then the text says in Judges 9.23, and God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leadership of Shechem. And so there was already hatred between the two, but then God sent a spirit of hatred. And we're told that Saul is afraid of David. And then God sends a terrifying spirit that increases Saul's fear and makes him a raving madman. I mean, what is this? I mean, what, what is, how does this help us understand how envy changes us? And the point of the parable, the point of, the, the point of this part of the text is, is something like this, I believe. That in the beginning, okay, when you talk about sin, especially sins like envy, in the beginning you may dabble a little bit in lust, but eventually, if you're not diligent, lust will begin to dominate you. In the beginning, you might do envy a little, but eventually envy will do you. You start with fear and insecurity, which leads to envy, and if you're not careful, it turns into a spirit of envy. You get enslaved to it. You lose control. There, there are, this passage is teaching, supernatural forces of evil in the universe, and the more that you just willingly give yourself, give in to lust or greed or anger or envy, you put yourself in touch with those spiritual, supernatural spiritual forces of evil until 
if you're not careful, you're overrun by them and you have no control over yourself anymore. I mean, the scariest part of this passage is this. If you insist on living with envy, if you don't fight it, if you don't repent, if we don't deal with this and really kind of try to get our hearts around it, then God just might give you over to it, and it will, become, it will just become a part of who you are. It will be the ground note of your life. It will be so much a part of you that you won't even know it's there. Envy leads to spiritual slavery. It will destroy you. And so third, okay, I hope, I hope, uh, so third, the cure. And the cure comes by diagnosing the malfunction and then correcting it. So this is where I think as we talk about these things, Colossians chapter 3 is so helpful. And so if you would look back at your call to worship in your worship folder, I want you to see there in Colossians 3, verse 5, where the Apostle Paul says, it's, in your, it's your call to worship. He says, put to death, therefore, what is evil, oh, excuse me, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness. Get this, ready? Which is, can you say it? Idolatry. Idolatry. See, there it is. See, do you see what Paul says? He says, where does envy, where does envy come from? Where does covetousness, covetousness come from? Idolatry. Now, what does that mean? Let me try to explain this to you very quickly as we kind of try to come to a close. The sin underneath the sin of envy and every other sin is the sin of unbelief. It's idolatry. In other words, we're all worshiping other things in the place of God. This is, this is what's really wrong with us. And Martin Luther's famous saying was that if you're having trouble with commandments 2 through 10, it's because you've already broken commandment number 1. Right? So all of our struggles with 2 through 10 are because in our hearts, John Calvin said our hearts are idol-making factories. We're constantly ma- taking things and turning them into idols that we're looking to for life and blessing and salvation. And so, and, and what Paul says is that your, your evil desire and your, your epithumia, your over-desire, your, your passions, your, your covetousness is all really rooted in idolatry. And the way you know what it is that you're looking to, whatever that idol may be, whatever the thing is that is your God that you're worshiping in the place of the true God, if you want to know what it is, if you want to know what your heart is making its meaning, if you want to know where your heart really rests its deepest hope and joy, not in God, Look at your envies. What do, you, what do you begrudge other people having the most? What do you find yourself envying? Now, a couple of, just one or two examples, maybe. Uh, I've, I'm not a man that is very far along in life, and I, I don't have a lot of wisdom, but one of the things that I've observed is I've observed that people who don't have money often just hate people who do have money, and they accuse them of being greedy and selfish, etc. But what I've come to learn is that most times the poor begrudge the rich because money's their God. You know? Whatever we begrudge other people, whatever we're angry about, I can't believe she doesn't deserve to have that. Be careful. See, envy not only leads to slavery, it reveals slavery. And the problem with our lives is that there are idols that are driving us. We're enslaved to them, and trying to serve them is just destroying us. And for Saul, it was the kingship, right? I mean, God had taken it from him, chapter 15. But it was his life. And because it was his life, it was his identity, it was his sense of meaning. It was everything to Saul. he, He couldn't live without it. And because of that, he was willing to kill, even try to kill David six times. He would disown his family for it. He would do whatever it took to keep it because it was the main thing in his life. It was his hope. It was his identity. It was his God. And and trying to hold on to it was the very thing that was just destroying him. And this is happening to all of us. I mean, envy is killing all of us. And so how do we get healed? How do we get free of it? See, that's where we've got to finish this morning. And I think Jonathan shows us the way. Not our Jonathan, but... Jonathan in the text. And in many ways are Jonathan too. It's neat for my dear friend to be Jonathan because David's was Jonathan. This is cool. Uh, Jonathan shows us the way. Okay. Now the narrator deliberately puts Jonathan and Saul side by side in their attitude towards David here to make a point. See, both Saul and Jonathan see the same thing. God is raising David up to be the king, but Saul is opposing God. And Jonathan is in, God, Saul's opposing God by opposing David. Jonathan is embracing David. 
So look what we read about Jonathan in his love for David back at the beginning of the passage in verses 1 through 3. We're told that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And then Jonathan made a covenant with David and he stripped himself of the robe that he was wearing. Gave it to David and his armor and even, the narrator says, and even his sword and his bow and his belt. I mean, when Jonathan strips himself of his robe like that, he's basically giving up crown rights. Remember, He's the heir. When Saul dies, he will be king. He's the son of the king. He's the one that's supposed to be king. But when he takes off his robe and he gives it to David, he is symbolically, willingly giving up his claim to the throne and giving it to David. I mean, this is what would happen in that culture. He is taking off, he is divesting himself of his right to the throne and instead saying, David, this belongs to you and not uh, to me. Now, I know I've been quoting Tim Keller a bunch in this series, and I'll probably continue to do so because he's preached a, sermon of, a series of sermons on these same passages that are just marvelous. And in his sermon on this scene, he says of, of Jonathan doing this, of Jonathan stripping himself of his robes, taking off his sword and his belt and giving it to David, he says, this is gospel faith. He says, Jonathan is looking at David and saying, I perceive that God's salvation is coming to the people through you, and the only way I can participate in it is to get off the throne and therefore I do. Let me say that again. He says, Jonathan is looking at David and saying, I perceive that God's salvation is coming through to the people through you, and the only way I can participate is to get off the throne, and therefore I do. And, that, and in that, we see our cure for envy. Two things in particular, and then I'm done. Jonathan shows us the opposite of envy. He shows us what love and friendship is, and this is the attitude that we should have towards one another. I mean, what Jonathan does here is the exact opposite of envy, okay? Envy is being pained by the happiness and success of others, but Jonathan does the exact opposite. He puts his happiness into David's happiness. I mean, this is how Jonathan Edwards defined Christian charity in his sermon on envy. He says, envy is the opposite of love because love is locating your joy in the joy of the person you love. In other words, you so passionately want them to be happy and successful, and that you're not happy until it happens for them. That's how you know you love somebody. Men, that's how you know you love your wife, is it's not about you. You are not happy until you can work or do whatever you have to do to make that woman who you live with happy. And when she's happy, you're happy. That's love. I experienced this last night at, 12, at about 12 o'clock, riding Men in Black, at Universal Studios with the youth group. I'm in the youth group again, man. It is really cool. So I got a sixth grader now. We went to Universal Studios. About midnight last night, we were riding Men in Black, and I'm thinking, I've got to preach in nine hours. My sermon's not done. I'm going to be able to, what am I doing here? I don't, my gun is not working as I'm trying to shoot these aliens as we're going around. I mean, it is, I mean, am I having, yeah, I'm having a great time. But I don't really enjoy doing, I mean, why am I having such a great time? Because my son's having a great time. And believe me, there was no other reason for me to be there at midnight, standing in line with a bunch of teachers. We love Jesus. Yes, we do. We love Jesus. How about you? I'm thinking, oh, my gosh. What? I mean, high five. I, you know, I was solicited for about 2,500 high fives for Jesus last night walking around Universal Studios. And I'm thinking, why am I here? I want to be asleep because I love my son. I mean, really, it was. It was just like, that's the only reason. And you see, that's what love is. It's the opposite of envy. Love is, you can ride a ride. I'm, I'm getting, I scored like 13,000 points, and he scored like 950,000, and Josh Nicholson scored like over a million or whatever, and I was embarrassed. And I thought, well, I mean, this is not fun. <laughs> but it is. And how? Because, because of the smile on his face. Because he loves to kick my rear end and anything he can. And it's so... I love him, and because I love him, then somehow something that's not fun is all of a sudden fun. You see that? I mean, and this is the way, Jonathan Edwards says, this is love. This is how you live, this is how you be really good friends to one another. This is what Christian charity towards, this is what the gospel does, it creates people who are able to do that. Not just the people, it's easy to love your son, but can you love a rival that way? It's hard, isn't it? So then, last thing, so how do you get it? And you've got to see not only in Jonathan the, love, the attitude we should have towards one another, but you've got to see in Jonathan Jesus' attitude towards you. See, look at Jonathan taking off his robes, 
laying aside his crown rights. I mean, what does that make you think of? <laughs> it's a picture of the gospel. Right? Like Jonathan, Jesus had crown rights. He was heir to the throne of the universe, and yet he took off his robe. He laid aside his claim to the throne. He lost his throne in order to give it to you and I. And the gospel of Jesus Christ reveals that the heart of God for us is the exact opposite of envy. God's heart for us is the exact opposite of envy. He loves to see people get more than they deserve. That's what grace is. I mean, God loves. He doesn't begrudge the success and happiness of others. God loves it when people get what they don't deserve. So much so that he was willing to come in the person of his son Jesus to suffer and to die to make sure that we get what we don't deserve. You see, that truth has to melt your heart when you're tempted to say, oh, I just, you know, no, no, no. How has God, how has God loved me? See, it has to melt your heart. If you come face to face with the grace of God towards you in Christ, then you won't be able to envy any longer. You won't begrudge people their happiness and success. Remember, the emotional root of Saul's envy of David is God is not for me, he's against me. And the only way then to be healed of your envy is to know that God is for you and to know that he loves you. I mean, and God may have been against Saul. He may have left Saul, as it says here, but if your faith is in Jesus Christ, then he can't be against you and he will never leave you or forsake you. Because on the cross, the Father turned his back against Jesus so that you and I could confidently say this morning, God is for me, God is for me, God is for me. And so if the sin underneath every sin, and even the sin of envy is unbelief, if it's a failure to believe the truth of the gospel, then therefore the only way to find the grace and the strength to overcome the sin of envy and to avoid all the destruction that envy can cause is to find a greater faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is why we come Uh, to listen to his word preached, and which is why we come to celebrate this meal together this morning. So come to this table and ask him for a greater faith in his love for you that would transform a heart that could easily give in to envy into a heart that willingly loves other people and puts puts its joy in the joy of those people. That's the kind of people that will take a city. And so we need to beg him to make us that kind of people, and he'll do it. He promises when his word is preached and through the celebration of this meal. So let's pray and prepare ourselves to come to this table. Lord Jesus, we are struck once again of your kindness towards us and of the grace that is ours because of your work on our behalf. Uh, We confess to you that so many times our our hearts are given over to envy, and yet as we uh, meditate even for a moment upon the truth of the gospel, we see that your heart towards us is the exact opposite, that you do not begrudge the happiness and the joy of others, but that you have placed your joy in our joy so much so that you were unwilling to remain in heaven uh, while we lived in distress and despair, but you suffered and died in order to guarantee that we get what we don't deserve. That is the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is the very truth that we need so desperately to come home to our hearts. So would you now, in the the closing moments of our service as we celebrate this meal together, by the power of your spirit, drive it home to our hearts. And may it change us so that we may bear fruit, the fruit of love towards one another and towards our city. And that you might be glorified in that fruit. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. If you'll stand with me and recite the Apostles' Creed as we do each month on Communion Sunday, you'll see it on the screen behind us here. And I would ask Christian, in an age of unbelief, what is it that you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You can be seated.
Each month on on Communion Sunday, we are uh, reminded uh, of the grace that is ours in Christ Jesus uh, visibly. Uh, We get to hear a sermon preached, which is the grace of God in Christ for us uh, verbally, but in front of you is a visual picture of this uh, in the bread and the cup, uh, in his body broken and his blood shed. Uh, And the... The food that is before you, the meal that's before you, uh, is one that is here because Jesus died. Uh, And as our call to worship reminds us, if your faith and your hope are in the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 3 of Colossians 3 is, uh, in, in my judgment, in light of communion and in light of what we've heard this morning about envy, Uh, a a mantra to repeat to yourself. I am dead. And my life is hidden with Christ in God. I am dead. So when your heart is is, is leaping toward envying, toward coveting, toward idolizing another person, wanting to weep when they're rejoicing, wanting to rejoice when they weep, uh, the, the corrective of that is I am dead. Gosh, I've got to remember, I'm dead. And my life is hidden with Christ in God. And the reason I'm dead is because I've joined myself to the one who died. Uh, But on the other side of that death was a resurrection. And the promise of the scriptures is, when you unite yourself to Jesus in his death, you also are united to him in his resurrection. And this food that you come to take this morning uh, is the, the, uh, the fuel far more so than the lunch you'll have uh, after this for the mission he's carried, uh, he's, he's given us to carry out. It is the food uh, from which you will be equipped to conquer envy and covetousness, which is idolatry. Uh, and so I would remind you of that. And in, in, in light of that, to, to make a couple of warnings before you do come, this is the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so... If you have not put your faith and your hope and your trust and your life into the, de- the, the dying life and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're not a Christian, if you're not sure what that means, I'd caution you, please don't come to this table because it's the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul reminds us in the book of 1 Corinthians that in the Corinthian church, some people had died because they were coming unworthily to this table consistently. And so I would warn you uh, not to come if your faith and your hope are not firmly planted on the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, uh, this is a table from which Jesus has won peace. We greeted one another earlier in the service, and as the Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans, uh, having been justified by faith, because we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's a table of peace. And if there's not peace in your life, if there's some reconciliation that needs to take place, we would implore you to, implore you to refrain. Because it's a table of peace. And so handle whatever it is that is out of whack right now and come back next month and celebrate this table because uh, we'll be here again next month to do it together. Uh, Let me rehearse with you, uh, and then I'll give you uh, some logistics, and we will take uh, the supper together. Let me rehearse with you the words that Jesus gave to us. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread in the upper room with his disciples, and after he had given thanks, he broke the bread, and he gave it to them, and he said, this is my body, broken for you. Take it and eat it, and whenever you do, Do it in remembrance of me. After supper, he took the cup, and in the same fashion, after he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples, and he said to them, Drink this, all of it, because this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Whenever you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. And so what you have before you, before your eyes, and eventually... It will be in your mouth and and, and ingested into your system so that you can taste 
the sweetness of the cup, which was the bitter cup for Jesus. You and I get the sweetness of this cup. We get the nourishment of this bread because His body, the bread of life, was broken. And so as you come, come come anticipating Him feeding you with His body broken and His blood shed. Because He says, unless you take my flesh, eat it and drink my blood, you have no part in me and I have no part in you. So as you come, come mindful of that uh, this morning. We're going to have four sets of servers uh, up here at the front, two over here and two over here, and we ask that you would come down the center aisle, uh, take a piece of bread, take a cup, uh, return to your seat on the outside. Uh, after you return to your seat and everybody's received the elements, we'll take together. So don't go back to your seat and take. Uh, wait until everybody's received, and we'll all take together. Uh, so as the servers come, let me pray, and uh, you come after that. Lord Jesus, we do marvel once again that you would willingly have your body broken and your blood shed. For as Drew mentioned a little while ago, those who only deserved to have their bodies broken and their blood shed, your very enemies. And so we marvel at that. And as uh, we come this morning, we ask that you would feed us, Lord Jesus, in the spiritual mysteries. Uh, that we're experiencing here. Come and feed us. May we feed on you. And may we be fed with that spiritual nourishment and changed as a result, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please come. Uh, Taking the bread together, this is the body of Christ broken for you. In the same way, taking the cup, this is the blood of Christ shed for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for feeding us uh, with the spiritual food in the mysterious fashion in which you have left us this meal. And Lord Jesus, we do pray that you would use the nourishment of your body broken and your blood shed to, to enable us to conquer the areas of envy in our own lives, to remember that we are dead and our life is now hidden with you in our Lord God and that that would change us and then that change would produce fruit and the fruit be to your glory here in our city and to the ends of the earth we pray in Christ's name, amen. Uh, Each month uh, we take a mercy offering uh, specifically used for the needs of those who are hurting or in need in our own congregation and then uh, into our community. And every time we do that, we have a ministry report where someone uh, gives a testimony as to what's going on and, or whatever it might be. And this morning, Drew's going to come introduce us to someone. <laughs> uh, men, come and take the offering if you would. Let me encourage you about this offering. We're almost done. It's unusual that we try to do baptism and communion on the same Sunday, but we did it today. So be patient with us for just a few more minutes. Uh, I want to encourage you with this offering. We, uh, in the first six months of our uh, year this year, we took up as much money in this offering in this offering as we had planned for the entire year. So we are uh, being humbled for having little faith. Uh, you're a very generous people, and so thank you for that. I, I get the privilege of introducing you to a friend of mine who is now going to be coming on staff at our church uh, to work with us, Steve Straub. Steve, uh, Trish, you guys, and Malachi, you guys come on up if you want. Um, somewhere up here. Um, we, uh, we have said from the very beginning that in planting the Church of the Redeemer that if we really wanted to change a city, it was going to take more than just one church. And so we planted this church three years ago now Uh, With the clear intention, you guys come right here, with the clear intention that we were going to be a church, not just a church plant, but a church that would plant other churches. Uh, To do that, we need men who are willing to serve as church planters. And uh, it is something that we weren't necessarily expecting. There you go, you guys stay right there, that's good. Uh, Not something that we were expecting, but something that kind of fell into our lap. Steve and Trish uh, have ministered in our city for a number of years and really desire to plant a church. They want to plant a church, he wants to plant a church, we want to plant churches, it's a match made in heaven. 
And so um, for the next three years, he's got to go to seminary. But for three years, he's going to be working here with us on staff uh, and kind of training, getting ready. It's going to be a long thing. They're going to be here for a while. They're going to get into a community group, do all those kinds of things. But I'm putting you on notice that every person who joins as a member of this church, we tell you that one day we're going to ask you to plant a church. We did it already. We're not doing it again. Okay? That's supposed to be funny, but nobody laughed. You hear that? They obviously... No, it's not funny. It's your turn now. In three years, we're going to plant a church, and that means that some of you, and it was great. We had a conversation in our house the other day. I was thinking, you know, we started talking about, I was thinking we could get them connected with so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. Ashley said, no, no. Those people are not allowed to leave. We love them. Nevertheless, for us to complete our mission, we're going to have to get over what is comfortable for us uh, to do what is good for our city. So in three years, we're going to be sending them out to plant a church, and some of you are going to be going with them. Okay, so just be mindful of that. I know many of you are thinking, I thought we wanted somebody for community groups. We still do. We're praying about how God's going to provide for us in that. But this opportunity to, to welcome them came along, and uh, we felt like we couldn't pass up. And we're, we as a leadership team and the elder candidates and Jonathan and I are, are super, can't tell you how excited we are to have them. So it's your responsibility this morning to shower them with love. And when you see them for the next few weeks, make sure you introduce yourself because it can be hard to come into a new church. Uh, especially as a staff person. So, St- Steve, Trisha, we're glad y'all are here. Uh, very excited to have you. Uh, let's um, let's pray for them, if you would, and then Terry's going to lead us in songs as we as we leave. Can I can I do that, Father? I feel like I need to come over here and touch you guys while I'm doing this. Father, I do pray. Uh, I pray for the work of church planting in our city. We pray for this almost every week uh, that you would help us to plant churches. And so, I thank you for the provision of this family and of this man. And uh, we are super excited for them. Uh, and I do pray that their time with us would be a blessing to them, that they would grow in their faith and the knowledge of the gospel uh, and their joy in the gospel, and that it would just produce uh, wholeness and health and um, stability and grace in them. I pray for their uh, kids as well, that they would just uh, enjoy being here. And I do pray for us as a church that you would help us to be wise to know how to, to help them and encourage them and support them. And I pray. For those in the room who are thinking, no, no, I'm not leaving, uh-uh, what are you talking about leaving, going, I pray that you would begin even now to work upon, the- we got three years, Father, for you to do this work in hearts, but I do pray that you would right now begin to work on the hearts of people, and we would have people begin to say, you know what, I might, I might be willing to join that church planting thing, and I look forward in, in, a, in a few years down the road to, uh, to having a, a guy that I get to partner with in ministry in the city of Winter Haven, and a new, and a new church birthed out of our church, that would be so exciting. So thank you for this opportunity. Uh, provide for us financially, provide our daily bread in every way in this project, uh, and we pray all these things that you might be glorified, and we pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys welcome them today after the service, please. If your faith and hope are in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are free not to envy but to love because he is for you, uh, because of the work of Christ on your behalf. And so receive then, this is the promise of the benediction, that very thing. God is for you, God is for you, God is for you if you've repented of your sins and put your faith in Christ Jesus. So receive then the promise of the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.